Welcome to Out of the Blank. Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. I'm here with Mel. Mel, for everyone out there listening, why don't you give everybody a little bit about yourself? Uh, yeah, so my name is Mel Slater. Um, I'm at the University of Barcelona. I've been doing research on virtual reality for about 30 years now. We first started in 1991. Um, I, it changed my life in the sense that before I'd been working on computer graphics, but when I first tried virtual reality, um, I was so amazed, I wanted to understand why it worked, because you could imagine in those days, the kind of visual displays you got were nowhere near as good as we have now. And many, many things were very different. Though, though there's many things the same as now, there were many things that were very different. Basically, overall, the quality was much lower, but nevertheless, it had a huge impact on me. So I changed my research direction in order to study uh, how and why virtual reality works. Why do people feel that they're in the space depicted to them by the virtual reality system? Why do they respond as if it's really happening? I tried to answer all these questions and here 30 years later, we're still working in, in this area. What do you think about virtual reality? You see it heading in a positive direction or you see it heading in a negative dire direction? Because getting more interested into AI and then tech as well, too, because it's a part of our lives now. I don't know really any kids that are being born without a cell phone. There's none of those parents that are kind of like, you're not going to have a cell phone until you're 13. Now it's like you're born and you have a cell phone in your hand. Um, but virtual reality, especially the direction I've seen it at least um, interact, besides using it for like medical stuff, um, it has captured the market in entertainment. And to me, I like the positives of that. I think it's an amazing thing to use um, playing video games in virtual reality, making you feel like you can do Zoom meetings or connection meetings and actually physically be in the room with someone, even though you're not really there, just in the virtual metaverse, whatever you want to call it. But I feel like it's what we're seeing in the direction it's going, it's taking it down a bad route where it could be used for so much more. And I feel like it's like, it's like meeting God, but not really like wanting to talk to him. It's like just being in his presence. It's like for some people, that's enough. But what happens if you could actually communicate and have a conversation? That's what we could do with uh, virtual reality. You could literally use it for so many more positive things than just classic video games or uh, designer, whatever you want to say. You could use it for implications of um, first thing I could think of. Sorry if I'm ranting, but uh, there's a video game where a kid had lost his dad. And this isn't the, the story of the video game. This is an actual real scenario. But his dad and him used to play this video game all the time. And this racing video game will have his dad's car, which is the best lap track record as a ghost on the actual thing. So whenever he would play, he would just race against his dad who's no longer with him. Now, if you're telling me in a virtual reality experience, you can help people deal with loss, um, being able to recreate or put them in their old childhood home or relive a memory, for instance, if they're going through dementia, if they're going through all these implications, that's a positive, the direction I want to see it head into. 
but the direction we're heading into is, hey, you get to play Xbox. So you're, you know, you actually get to feel like you're in it. So I don't know where your thoughts are on all that. Well, if we look at what application has been, apart from entertainment, which is only recent, actually, it's only a lot, only since head-mounted displays have become cheap and portable. But the biggest application over the last 30 years has been in the area of using virtual reality and psychological therapy. So someone, and the typical way it's used is a replacement for, um, for complicated real life things. So for example, let's take a simple example. Uh, somebody who has fear of heights. So if they have fear of heights, the way a, a therapist would normally deal with this using uh, cognitive behavioral therapy or exposure therapy, they would gradually get them used to being at heights. So first time they meet, they might make them stand on a chair. The second time they meet, they might, might make them go up in the lift one floor of a building. And the next week, it might be two floors of a building and so on and so on. But of course, to do this is logistically difficult. It doesn't take place in the therapist's office. The therapist either has to give someone homework, go and do this. Of course, the therapist doesn't know if they really did it or not. And is not there or she or she is not there while they do it. But in, if you use virtual reality, you can do the whole thing in the office or even at home. So people can go into virtual reality and gradually have this exposure therapy. First of all, be a bit higher, then a bit higher, then a bit higher until gradually they get used to it. So and they overcome their, their fears. And meanwhile, also, the psychologist is uh, trying to help them to cognitively understand what's going on. So this kind of application fear of heights fear of public speaking uh, even now for the last few years it's been used for uh, conditions like paranoia schizophrenia and so on this has been the biggest application area if you search for the number of scientific papers that have been published so generally my view of virtual reality it's uh, a safe space in which to carry out actions which are either dangerous impossible or too anxiety provoking in real life that's on one side uh, the other side of course the very positive side of virtual reality is that you can experience things that are again positive things say which are impossible to experience in physical reality well not impossible but very difficult so for example in virtual reality i can visit the moon and know what it's like to walk around on the moon or on mars or any other fantasy space or something like that and the interesting thing about it from a scientific point of view is that even though while you're doing this, you know none of it is true. So like if you're in virtual reality for fear of heights and you come across a precipice, which scares the life out of you, you know it's not there, but you still can't help having that anxiety about it. And that's what makes it work. That's what makes it work for therapy. The fact that even though cognitively you know nothing's happening, you're looking at some pixels on a couple of screens, you're looking at uh, uh, screens with some lights in them, but that's the reality of it. But your brain constructs this sensation of being in a place and that the events that are happening there are really happening. And you respond, you can't but help respond as if it's real. So this is the real power of virtual reality. Now, like any media, it can be used for good or for bad or just for neutral things um, or just for entertainment. Like you can go to a movie and you can see a fantastic film that really makes you feel good. 
makes you or makes you understand something new or uh, have experiences that you would uh, well kind of indirectly have experiences that you wouldn't have in reality through kind of living them through someone else's eyes who's an actor in the movie um, but also it can be used for really bad things you know it can be used for brainwashing for example well the same is true in virtual reality but because virtual reality is not new as I said I've been doing it for 30 years but it's new as far as well it was also there was a big wave of public interest in it in the early 1990s but that all faded away when it was realized that the hardware didn't live up to people's expectations now it kind of does live up to people's expectations and it's beginning to penetrate this the consumer market but um little is known about its effects its long-term effects because it hasn't been around long enough for it to be penetrating into the consumer market fantastic games that uh, people really enjoy and that they learn something new and it changes their lives in positive ways my overall conclusion virtual reality is a is a method a system uh, a technology which can be used for very positive purposes but like any you know a, a knife can be used to stab someone or cut bread the knife in itself is neutral but how it's used depends on the people who exploit it now i'm i'm, I'm gonna think up on optimistically some point in this podcast but i kind of want to start off with a little bit of the pessimist inside of me that wants to kind of talk about like the things that can happen now i want to touch on a few things one education i think this is a great tool for education especially how many times have you been on a field trip and like you got to carry what 30 something kids to a Holocaust museum or some type of museum. Imagine if they could just put on virtual reality and then experience it. You don't have to worry about signing permission slips or making the kids get lost. Now, the psychological part is the issue that I'm kind of concerned with and the interest that I kind of have is because it would be amazing to help people get rid of fears, but also there's a capability of it developing fears. See, the thing is when, when you come to the conclusions of this, I'm just wondering when it comes with like schizophrenia, for instance, how could it help somebody with schizophrenia? Like how could it help someone maybe help out with their illness or something of that sort, being able to confront things that are already there? Because to me, it just seems like that would amp it up. Because schizophrenia, the, the the issue with that is, is like, you don't know, you can't really distort what's not real and real. You know, you're, 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 you're having so many different scenarios that are being, that are going, like, literally, I can't even really describe it. I don't think really anybody can do it because it's like, depending on case per case basis, I would say, but their reality is warped. And that's kind of where I see virtual reality, for instance. There's a lot of people that go to the extremes on everything, whether that's drinking a diet drink, they'll drink 30 of them in a day, they'll do whatever. I look at virtual reality as is like for a lot of people, at least the general public. Now, I know your education, this is probably way different. And this is kind of why I like to ask you these questions, because the general public like myself, like you said earlier, the media is going to report on these types of things. They're going to show you the crazy, fun, insane stuff you can do to show you how amazing technology is. But also, they're going to report on the number of issues that do occur with virtual reality. So I like to jump in front of that bullet before instead of getting hit by it later. So I want to talk about the implications that it could have psychologically for someone with schizophrenia but also like what's to stop someone from enjoying the virtual reality so much that they don't want to function in the real world anymore you know what i mean because I, if you can tell me i can live in a mansion or i can live in this type of thing and be in this experience and all i have to do is get up and go to the bathroom and do all these types of things in reality and i just quit my job and a lot of people are staying at home till they're like 40 till they're and that is a 
product of the job market. And that is a housing market issue as well, too. But then it opens up that door for people not to want to experience the real world when they can just sit in their room. Like, I mean, I've been on a World of Warcraft binge for a very long time. So these are just a couple things, a couple thoughts that I have when it comes to this type of technology, because I think it can be funneled into something amazing. I just don't necessarily give people the credit i would say to want to you know stay with that amazing track i'm not saying you i'm just saying the general public tends to like you know go over a little bit overboard on some things yeah so um various points you made there <clears throat> so first of all as you said it's uh, very useful in education the field trips is the obvious one so uh it, it, rather than um actually have to take a whole group from California to up to Niagara Falls to see Niagara, Niagara Falls it is certainly much cheaper and safer and uh, uh, does less damage to the environment than just to put um, children or whoever is learning into a virtual reality and have not the full experience but some kind of experience of what it's like to be at Niagara Falls and this could be done very well with so-called 360 video where you actually uh, have somebody go to Niagara Falls, film it with a 360 camera, also in stereo, and then you can put on, take that, it can be played through a head-mounted display, and people can experience some aspect of what it's like to be in Niagara Falls. So in education also, like in mathematics, you're exploring some complicated shaped function, the relationship between the algebraic formula and how the surface of the function looks. You can have the function there in front of you, have it look displayed in front of you. You can walk around it. You can have several people simultaneously in the same virtual reality, looking at the same function and talking about it, change the formula. You see how the function changes. Same is true, gonna be true for many things in, in physics. Uh, even history. So uh, several years ago, we we at the anniversary of the uh, of the one, the Russian Revolution in two thousand in nineteen seventeen, we did a piece for the BBC, which was experienced some aspect of that of that revolution in virtual reality. So it's like all the subjects are wide open for education. So the second thing you talked about was um, schizophrenia. So one particular type of application I've seen is where, as you know, there's one aspect of schizophrenia is that people may hear voices, disembodied voices, or actually see things that are not, see people who are not there saying things to them. So the way this has been used in virtual reality, it's called avatar therapy, where the voice is given, well, this is just one example of it. There's many different examples, but the voice can be given a body, an avatar, and also people learn to take control over it and also learn to distinguish what which is, if you like, the reality and which is the virtual reality. And this uh, has been through some clinical trials and it's been found to be quite successful. Similarly, the one that I've worked on more with um, uh, Professor Daniel Freeman of Oxford is uh, in paranoia. And the way it works in paranoia is that you don't really cure the paranoia, but you you affect one of the what you influence one of the effects of it, which is that people who are paranoid really don't want to go out of their house because they um, they think people are going to harm them and, and things like that. 
But in virtual reality, you can give them experiences of being in the world, interacting with other humans, virtual humans, uh, learning that they can go into a cafe and order a coffee um, by, by practicing this in, in virtual reality. And uh, it's been shown to be really, really effective, again, with clinical trials. And, and this is also being um, put out to the uh, National Health Service in the UK. So um, examples I gave before, like fear of heights and so on, they're kind of obvious, but things like schizophrenia and paranoia, they're less obvious, but they're also very effective. The third point you made about is people don't want to function in the real world because virtual reality is so amazing. Well, I've never seen a virtual reality so amazing that I didn't want to ever take off a head-mounted display. I'm yet to see that. But if that ever happens and virtual reality is so amazing, I really don't want to take off the head-mounted display and it does everything that I want. Well, okay, what's the problem? I, I stay in it. I, I stay there. I use virtual reality. If it, makes me really happy and satisfies all of my needs, uh, food and uh, money and income and interactions with people. Okay, what's the problem? I don't think this is ever gonna happen, but in principle, I don't see a problem. However, like anything, as I said before, all of these things are open to exploitation by people who are unscrupulous and just wanna make money from it. So it's quite possible that there'll be applications developed which deliberately try to hook people to stay in the virtual reality, uh, responding to advertisements, buying things. Um, what is it called when you pay inside the application, paying more and more and more money because they get hooked on it? Well, this is a question not for virtual reality, but for society. You know, it depends what kind of economic system we live in that allows this kind of exploitation. So in itself, it's not virtual reality, which is bad, but it's the, or, or has this potential for causing problems, it's the society in which we live. So one should look for change to society, not to changes in the, whether virtual reality should be used or not. So they're all very interesting questions. Which yeah. do you think is more applicable? Do you think it's going to be easier to change society? Or do you think it's going to be able to make sure that we don't use virtual reality for the negative part about it? Now, I was I, my life doesn't suck, but there's a lot of virtual reality places that I'd be like, I would never leave this thing. And that 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 might not be just the concept of you just want to spend all your time in it. But sometimes you put that headset on and next thing you know, it's been seven hours already. And you're like, I thought this has only been like, it's so freeing and it's so relaxing. I mean, everyone sees the movie Avatar, for instance, that movie is a paradise. It is something that a lot of people wish it was real and they could visit. But now if they can put a headset on and experience that at any angle, be able to free range and free roam around it. I mean, that's just where it's going. Now, that is a marketing thing that is to get more people to buy virtual reality. As we've seen, it's been more accessible to a lot of people now. Virtual reality used to be like $700 to get it for your PlayStation. Now it's a, you can buy its own system and its own and it's $90. And now people are using it to make it YouTube videos and Twitch. I was going to do that instead of the podcast at some points because you get a lot more views when people want to watch people play games. Now, virtual reality with the gaming thing, for instance, how many people develop fears of virtual reality through that? Like we talked about therapies, being able to help someone conquer some fears, but how many people develop one off of a bad scenario where they're not guided? For instance, the reason why I don't like it being so accessible to a lot of people is because 
you don't necessarily know what you're walking into. And a lot of kids who might know what this world is and know what game they're going to play. They like to play a prank on their parents where they go, Hey dad, you want to be in this haunted mansion? It's pretty cool. You just get to sit on this couch and then they sit on the couch. Next thing you know, the kid starts, you know, ramping it up to the most extreme scare tactics and the parents freaking out because they, they, you see those videos, they're like punching something or they're doing something and they're hitting a wall or they're doing whatever because they don't realize like it's so new to them. It's, it's, it's a different age. And with these kids growing up that are digitally native, it's something I think we should be aware of as well, too. I'm not saying that nobody's not thinking about it. I'm just saying this is the direction that I see it heading towards. At least the general public sees it, which I consider myself part of that. Now I'm looking towards the more beneficial and trying to focus it more towards the improvement aspects when it comes to improving our lives, not necessarily improving the technology. I mean, more. if you would have said 10 years ago, 20 years ago, you get to live in this virtual world people would be like that's insane now it's like a possibility and i'm like we got to make sure that doesn't turn into like the trash that we kind of do now we got to make sure it turns into something beneficial when it comes to board meetings when it comes to education purposes i mean during the pandemic it would have been a lifesaver for a lot of kids if they had a virtual reality headset to go to school you would you wouldn't have to worry about them not going to school because of a pandemic they would already be in it And that's where I see the benefits of it. Now with schizophrenia and paranoia, um, I feel like that would make you way more paranoid, man, because I would start distinguishing what the hell's real. You know what I mean? Like even if I enter that virtual reality once, I'm just already thinking like it's like smoking a cigarette. There's no undoing smoking a cigarette, but there's no undoing. You can take off the headset. Sure. But damn, if you're not at work the next day, like I wish I was in my virtual reality right now. Like I would love that. Yeah, so uh, these are interesting points. The thing is, there's been a huge amount of speculation about the ethical consequences of virtual reality, but there's very little data out there, very little data. I mean, everything you've said, just kind of arguments that that you're making, which may have some validity, but there's really no data to support it, actual scientific studies. So um, we've uh, just started from funding from the Spanish government and you project which is going to experimentally look at various ethical uh, problems like like some of those that you raised to study whether these really do happen or whether it's just speculation I really don't know and um, at the moment there's the only regulatory control over virtual reality is that which applies to anything like uh, movies or um of television or adverts and so on different countries have different regulatory systems but there may need to be eventually regulatory control over virtual reality because at the end of the day as you're hinting it is more powerful to be in the same space as a character who's insulting you than to just see somebody on television who seems to be insulting you it's completely different experience so maybe there'll be some regulatory control. But in a way, I'm not exactly sure what you're getting at because what you're raising is basically politics. It's a political issue of how a new technology should be integrated in society. And this, is, this can't be decided by the technology. It's a societal problem. As I said before, it's how an economic system is used to... Um, to confront a new technology. And as we've seen, it can go really bad. 
So if we look at things like Facebook, Twitter, and so on, in a way, they've been extremely positive. So like during the pandemic, uh, I started using Facebook that I hadn't used for many years to keep in touch with people who I hadn't seen for a while, who are far away. Uh, it was very good. But also, we know that Facebook is possibly destroying democracy. So, you know, this is not a problem. This is a problem of Facebook in the sense of what regulatory con internal controls do they have inside Facebook? But it's also a problem of how society is organized, who is taking advantage of these systems to promote their own ways of thinking and impose them on others. This is not something I, as a virtual reality researcher, can do about in my role as a virtual reality researcher. It's more of a political problem, more of a problem of affecting laws, more of a problem of changing the way um, aspects of society are organized commercially. You know, you know what my biggest fear is? What's going to be bigger than virtual reality? It's going to be augmented reality. Why? Eventually, it doesn't exist now, but eventually you'll have kind of glasses like our ordinary spectacles that we wear. Be walking through, the, you, won't need a, you won't need a mobile phone anymore because it will be integrated in the augmented reality. So we'll be wearing these all the time. You're walking through the street and suddenly you're bombarded by virtual characters coming over to you trying to sell you things uh, or saying, uh, come come to this restaurant or buy this, buy that. And the only way you'll be able to stop that is to pay, to pay the uh, providers of the augmented reality system so that you're not bombarded all the time with adverts. So this is something which I think is quite likely to happen. So what do we do? Do we say, okay, we do not allow augmented reality to ever happen. We stop it. This is gonna be impossible. I don't know any technology that's ever been stopped for, for, for the reason that it may be used badly. But as I said, it then becomes a political problem of how this is allowed to be introduced into society, which is on a whole different level from what we're talking about today, involving political organization and things like that that I, I don't really want to go into now. But um, this is... Uh, you know, we're talking two different levels, the, pos the possible positive and negative uses of technology. That's on one side. We know that virtual reality and augmented reality are capable to produce good and also capable to produce evil. Which one of those happens and predominates is a question for society to deal with, uh, which uh, is, re is really more of a political issue. Now I'm going to head more towards the optimistic side of things. When we talk about simulations, for instance, virtual reality, and I didn't, I didn't really want to, I didn't, wasn't trying to connect the politics part to it, but now I can kind of see what you're talking about. There is a lot of like these corporations as free as it is. There's corporations that are kind of manipulating it in a certain sense, kind of taking it off the original tracks that the general public is coming in contact with. But if we talk about the benefits, for instance, imagine if you have a historian that focuses in a particular area, let's say one of my favorites, Leonardo da Vinci. 
if you have a historian of Leonardo da Vinci that programs a simulation that people can put on virtual reality and be able to experience Leonardo da Vinci writing down in his workshop. Now, you can't talk to him. You can't interact with him, but you get to be in the presence of a man that is creating some of the most advanced materials or advanced ideas of that time period. Now, in a sense, you get to understand more about Leonardo da Vinci, and it also might spark creativity for people to want to work on something of their own, necessarily not a tank that can shoot from all various angles, but more on the idea of cusp of knowledge and more of about an interaction and kind of a digital, I would say, presentation in a sense that is more experienced than just seeing a slideshow projection. Now, that's the direction I want to see it head towards. That's the, That's what I want to get involved in because that's fascinating as hell, mostly because I feel like a lot of people will be really interested into these subjects and contents if it was up to the mainstream as their games are. If it's something like a game, which I played plenty of educational games that I didn't know were educational, Assassin's Creed, people don't consider educational. To me, that is because it gets you interested in the concept of these historical landscapes and these things that people do do a little bit of research on to be able to implement into their game. It sparks creativity. It sparks curiosity. That's that's something I can I, I I'm interested in the educational reasoning behind this, but also medically. I mean, how many surgeries can be practiced or put into a virtual reality? Now, it's not going to be 100% exactly what's going to happen that surgery day. But if you have a random simulation, instead of people doing it on a computer or playing these games like simulation surgery or whatever, they have a virtual reality headset with handsets to be able to move and be able to make it as realistic as possible. We can fine tune that in such a sense where I guarantee you, you're going to see deaths go down in surgeries your surgery percentages go up in the fact that they're more successful than their failures you're gonna have more people taking risks to be able to actually help out a patient rather than give up on the case because it might hurt their career or might hurt their record or whatever i mean these are all small little things that when i say small i mean they pack a giant wallop in the grand scale of what the capacity of this technology can do yes i agree completely so if we um consider surgery um, medical applications of virtual reality, again, have gone on a lot in the last 30 years. It's combined with um, one of the things about surgery is is not just the visual aspects, but it's also the haptic, what you feel like you press a needle through some flesh. You really need to feel that real uh, as you would in reality. So virtual reality in the visual and auditory sense is combined with haptic devices to give surgeons uh, practice to rehearse different kinds of operations, but not only that, to carry out actual remote surgeries. So, uh, you know, somebody in the US may be carrying out a surgery on somewhere, someone in another country far away using the same kind of apparatus and the same kind of technology as virtual reality. So this is a very big and very important uh, area of application. Uh, medical simulation also think about the educational side of that that um, you know medical students now have to interact with actual uh, cadavers uh, in the future this is not going to be necessary because there'll be such detailed models of the body represented in virtual reality instead of dissecting real bodies they dissect a virtual one and gain I would say even better information because you can do all kinds of manipulations that you couldn't do in physical reality. So the medical side is a very important area. Um, the interaction with Leonardo is again, very interesting 
um, actually you could have you you could do something you said that you couldn't do you said you couldn't speak to him but actually I think you could these days in fact we're, we're working on things to do with this so yes we can have a model of Leonardo we can make a scenario of him writing something or painting something but also we actually have everything that Leonardo ever wrote is all there and using uh, modern machine learning techniques this data can be fed into a program and you could actually query and say uh, why were you and they would give you pretty intelligent answers uh, based on a kind of database of Leonardo's own works we're doing um, and actually it's, it's virtual reality is also very surprising you don't always get what you expect so we've been working for some time now on using virtual reality to simulate in virtual reality old rock concerts so like a particular one we've done is a dire straits concert that happened in london in 1983 and we built this simulation um, so you become part of the audience you see the band on stage you hear them you can move around look from any direction and so on you're surrounded by virtual human characters who, who are like dancing along with the the music and then um, we thought when we did this it was well first of all we didn't know what to expect would people just say oh this is stupid it's not real doesn't look exactly like dire straits looked and so on we, we didn't know so we ran an experiment not knowing what to expect and what we found was really interesting and surprising far from what we expected and it wasn't the performance of the band that impacted people it was how the audience around them impacted them. So for example, people would say, oh, whenever I looked at this character, they looked back at me instead too long. And I thought they were thinking bad things about me or women would say things like, I looked at this guy and he looked, remember this is all virtual reality. There's nobody real there. I looked at this guy and he looked back at me and then I got worried he was gonna come over and start trying to talk to me. And I really didn't want that. So. It's never straight, virtual reality is never straightforward. You do something and you find out again through, through experimental scientific studies, what effects this has on people. And this is what really interests me. The surprising things are always the most interesting scientifically because that's where you learn something new. So using virtual reality for historical reconstruction, like you said, is uh, not only a possibility, but it's actually really happening. People are doing this. And with the with the combination with machine learning, it's only becoming more and more sophisticated as time goes on. Now, you mentioned something earlier about brainwashing. Now, I want to spin that to the positive aspect of it. Imagine if you can have a headset at home that's kind of like calling 911, for instance. You get to contact an EMT or something like that. Now, you have a family member, much like everyone has a fire extinguisher in their home or everyone has some type of device or something anywhere really located. Imagine if these were virtual reality goggles with the proper tools as well, too. It just came with like safety equipment, I would say. Now, you could use that say someone has a heart attack, you're trying to give them CPR, you don't know how to do it. You can put it on, put the gloves on your hand as well too. And then EMT can control you with the same virtual reality thing to show you this is how you're supposed to do it. Let me walk you through it. Now that 
for instance, that would, I mean, that can only expand out there. When you mentioned someone going to one of these concerts, for instance, and saying it doesn't look anything like this. Now it doesn't, but it, it'll get there. It's time. It takes time. But if you don't research into it, if you don't funnel down through that thing, it's not going to advance. So instead of someone putting on virtual reality and being able to do a CPR class in emergency one real quick, to be able to perform on their loved one. Imagine if you could just have a certain connection that can move your hands and move the way that the person who's using the other side of the goggles, like a cell phone, is already experienced. They're like, let me take over. And then they can be able to do that. And all you have to do is take the gloves off. You have full control to get out of that at any time you want. Now, that's the positive of that aspect of brainwashing, for instance, you would have people in maybe less uh, informed countries on certain surgeries or certain devices, be able to connect with someone who's more informed on that specific case without them having to travel, be able to put that on and be like, here, I'll do the surgery. You're just there holding the equipment. Or even then you could hook it up to a machine and let the machine do the surgery, but someone else is controlling it through virtual reality. Like they're actually experiencing a piece of that. That would save on so much time with travels. That would save on so much time on decision making when it comes to people choosing whether they want to go to this country to have their surgery or this it would make it equally accessible all around the board yeah i, I agree that the, the, the um i'm not sure about the part with the uh, device actually controlling your own movements but in a way it's not necessary so probably more with augmented reality um if there's some kind of emergency that you have to deal with and you don't know what to do uh, you wear the glasses and then Basically, you're shown like you see virtual hands moving and you copy the movements and this kind of thing. Uh, you, you're, you're able to do um, sophisticated things that you didn't know how to do before. Um, uh, I, I can see this kind of application very well. In fact, it's actually happening. So there are applications out there to do with remote machine maintenance where um, you're, you know, you're in a company, you have a machine, the machine breaks. Of course, you can call the manufacturer and ask them to send an engineer and the engineer comes three days later, uh, spends a whole day doing it, charges a fortune. But instead, what, what some applications do is you, again, wear augmented reality or even virtual reality glasses and the remote engineer talks you through what you should do to try to see what's wrong with and maybe even repair that machine. So working with a machine is obviously more easy than working with someone in a medical condition but these kind of applications exist um, and uh, their extension to the to emergency medical situations uh, let's say while you're waiting for the real professionals to turn up you may save someone's life that way so i think this is a very good point that you've come up with there yeah what about do you think about the human capacity to understand now, if someone can experience virtual reality, much like they can put it on if they have schizophrenia to be able to understand, to be able to sort out reality from not really being real, what about the concept of people that can understand another person's experience? Much like the Neuralink was going to be able to let you communicate through thoughts or be able to see someone's intent in a sense. Imagine if you have a family member who's developing some type of severe uh, medical or mental disorder and you're trying to know what that is, but you can't understand it because you don't know what it is. Now you can put on virtual reality to be able to experience what they experience, for instance. How many people have taken psychedelics and tried to describe the trip that they had, this enlightening experience? Imagine if you don't have to take the drug anymore, but now you can just take that virtual reality and experience something like a psychedelic trip, an enlightening sense of oneself, or 
we can talk about cigarettes. How many people smoke a cigarette and don't realize the full uh, effects of their health or something like that until they're 70 years in? And next thing you know, they, they're working off one lung. Imagine if you put on virtual reality to show them this is what's going to happen if you keep smoking cigarettes. I mean, you can't – maybe you can – because this is the thing about like the haptic features with virtual reality or just our brain's understanding, like the psychological aspects. When you have a headset on, if you have earpieces in, if you have something over your eyes, and it'll make you – your brain will start thinking you're actually here. Like you're actually on top of this skyscraper. Now you're not there at all, but it makes it like that. Now, if we can, if that keeps excelling and that keeps going forward, someone that does a, a fighting class or something like that, they rip off the headset. Now their heart's beating. They're, they're feeling all the effects of what they were just in. If they were in a chase or if they were doing something like this. Now that can translate to maybe if smoking a cigarette or doing these types of things, eventually will the technology get to a point where someone could feel the effects, even though they haven't smoked a cigarette and they can just take it off and be like, well, I want to stay away from cigarettes. That's, that sounds like a horrible end. Could it possibly head in that direction? It is heading in that direction. It's already there. Uh, I mean, obviously all of these things can be improved. So perspective taking, experiencing the world from someone else's point of view, uh, what, one example of this I remember, I don't remember the artist, but it was many, maybe 15 years ago or, or longer. There was an artist who'd had a, a brain injury through a car accident, and she created a virtual reality that um, you walk through a museum and you see in that virtual reality how her own view of the museum was distorted because of the brain injury you have. So you get an idea of how it was like to be her. Um, virtual reality has been used uh, a lot in, in, uh, in the last few years for so-called, um, uh, so-called, uh, as a so-called empathy machine, where you uh, embody a, a particular person in a, a particular a representative of a group of people, and you experience how it is like to be that kind of person. Uh, the typical examples that this has been done in is with uh, uh, racial bias and discrimination and this kind of thing. And you have experiences of what it's like to be that. Not necessarily lead to positive outcomes, by the way, but it certainly does give you an experience because it makes people stressed. When they're stressed, they don't learn. So, but nevertheless, it can give you an experience to some extent of what it's like to be in that situation. Similarly with uh, men being embodied as a woman and then finding out what it's like to be disparaged because they think if you're a woman, you can't be a good scientist or something like that. All these kinds of things, there's, there's been experimental studies done and uh, that, that kind of application has been done. And obviously it's only gonna be better. With LSD, that's a very interesting one as well. There's a scientist whose name I think is David Gowalski, who was at Bristol University in the UK and now has moved to um, the north of Spain, who's um, he's, uh, done a lot of work on trying to reproduce LSD type experiences within virtual reality. And at least at the um, subjective level, when he gives people questionnaires, for example, um, which are used for people to describe their experiences of an LSD trip, and he gives it to people who have had his kind of virtual reality version, you get very similar results between the two. Whether one thing is really the same as another is a, is a different issue, but people are exploring these kinds of issues. Um, 
in smoking, again, over many years now, there's been studies um, and um, techniques for helping people uh, overcome addiction to smoking or alcohol and so on, uh, using various different methods. One of my own PhD students is, is working on this. Um, uh, it's just kind of in the early stages of a study. So all of these things you say are perfectly not only possible, but they're actually happening now. Um, and there, these kind of things will only get better and will get better knowledge as we do more and more of these things will get better scientific understanding of what works and what doesn't work and, and so on. So I think this is a really important point. And um, for me, it's one of the one of the reasons to use virtual reality is to uh, help people overcome problems to improve their lives uh, and so on do you think it could heal certain aspects of the brain like you mentioned like someone that might be suffering from something or you know might have a damaged brain for instance so they can see the perspective of that person is there a way to be able to treat that through a device where it helps like like we talk about like schizophrenia for instance or something like that is there a way like an actual impact where it heals certain neurons in the brains that might be damaged let's say someone's in a car accident uh suffers from severe ptsd for instance or something of that sort is there a way to be able to repair that certain part of the brain or help it relearn certain aspects like walking again if they can't walk or something like that but just more on an actual real i guess example of watching these neurons slowly start to repair themselves because they're now being targeted more specifically than we can with like a brain surgery or something like that there's a psychological impact where you could do a surgery on a brain to fix it now, physically, it might be repaired the way it's supposed to look, but is that person going to be 100% back to normal? Probably not. There's going to be some type of psychological thing that they're going to need counseling or something for. So imagine if this virtual reality device can do that at a level that physically we cannot yet. That's where I'm looking into. Yes. So uh, going back to um, uh, uh, PTSD, there's... Um... A, a, a scientist in uh, University of Southern California, his name is Albert Skipzo, who for years and years now, maybe 15 years, has been using virtual reality to help veterans overcome their PTSD. This is very successful work. Um, you know, PTSD is it can really very very badly affect people's lives, so they can't function in the real world, and they have very successful outcomes in in uh, in this in in this uh, treatment um a few years ago we, we ran an experiment where the participants were seated they were just sitting down wearing the head mounted display they looked down and they saw their virtual body from a first person perspective standing and then they went for a walk or the body went for a walk and uh, so they, they would look down, they'd see their body below as normal below the virtual body. They see the legs walking along, they have a shadow of their body and people had the illusion that they were walking. And not only that, when the virtual body walked up a hill, their own heart rate started to increase as, as if they were expending more energy. So I think that also there's work done by a very famous Brazilian scientist who also works in the US I don't remember his name, that has done the kind of thing that you said to um, improve the ability of people who can't walk to actually begin to take steps by, first of all, 
uh, seeing a virtual body do it and then trying it themselves. So I think there's very good hope for the kind of thing that you suggest. It's in its early days of using virtual reality to actually cure certain problems, uh, particularly neurological problems that come from, um, that cause damage to the body, the, the some, an arm can't move or something like that. So once again, you're kind of uh, um, ahead of the field in a sense that you're thinking things, but um, uh, which are, sound to be very advanced and they are advanced, but already steps have been taken that move in those directions. So yeah, LSD type experiences in virtual reality, uh, embodied perspective taking for empathy, uh, smoking, PTSD, and overcoming um, some physical conditions through in a sense, retraining the brain to some extent. So yeah, these are very good points. I know uh, the beginning I started off, like I said, the pessimistic stability begins with the optimistic. Cause I, I like to think of these things as much as I think about like the worst possible scenarios. I also like to look at the best possible of how we're going to get there. Now you can't breed out maybe personal things that people are going to do with the devices that they're going to use, but you can look at the overall benefits from it as well too. And I'm curious, what have you maybe hoping that the direction, not like the direction of it, it's going to go in education, like I asked you earlier, but an aspect of what have you not yet seen it done that you would like to see happen? So from a technical point of view, um, the, the most important missing thing in some sense is the haptics, the feeling, the touch and force feedback. So if you think about vision and sound, you can anything that is possible to program in a computer to generate visually, you can do it, anything. And it doesn't need any change. You wear the same head mounted display and anything you wanna, somebody wants you to see, they can program it to make you see that, that's it. Same with sound, you can play any sound you want. But haptics is completely different. So there are very, very good haptic devices out there, but each one is limited purpose. So if I wanna have a haptic device that uh, pushes a needle through flesh, for somebody for surgery training, I can get a really good haptic device for that. But it won't, uh, that, that device won't give me a feeling on my elbow as my elbow happens to brush against the wall that I'm walking through, uh, uh, you know, a space in virtual reality. So for every kind of haptics, you need a, a different device in order to be able to do that. So what we really need is a generalized haptics where I use one type of system, one device, and it does everything. Uh, I can push a needle through the flesh. I can bump into a virtual wall and feel it on my body. Somebody can push my shoulder and I feel them pushing the shoulder. That doesn't exist. And we're very, very far from having anything like that. My own view is that that may be solved eventually through direct uh, uh, computer brain interfaces that uh, you spark that aspect, some part of the brain that... Uh, gives you, the, the, now I might be talking now 50 or 100 years time, that gives you the feeling that something's touched your skin or pushed you or you feel different textures. That's another thing, just feeling textures. You know, I'm sitting here on a table, which is wood. I rub my hand on the wood and I have a certain feeling. There's other things here like glass and metal. Yeah, for every type of thing, you need a different device. So this is the thing which doesn't exist at all, I would say, in virtual reality, except for very specific purpose devices, which are very good in themselves, and huge research has gone into those, but they're not general, like sound and vision are general.
So this is, I think, the missing aspect. Have you thought about conducting research with people who experience phantom limb syndrome, like people who've lost a limb and can still, I feel like that would be like the most beneficial aspect. They would be the, uh, the perfect people to talk to about this type of experience because they're able to feel something that maybe you can scan the brain and be able to see what's happening in their brain that makes them feel these types of things, whether people want to say it's somewhere in the memory or somewhere in part of the brain. I mean, that's like exactly what you're explaining. That feeling of that thing is exactly what they experience. It's, it's kind of the same concept, just different different dramatizations, I would say. Yes, actually, I wrote this down already from what you were saying before. So um, there's something um, called the rubber hand illusion, which is, um, it was uh, first appeared in a scientific paper in Nature in 1998 by Botnovic and Cohen. It's really simple. You get a rubber hand, you put it on a table in front of you, uh, you move your real corresponding hand out of the way, and someone taps your real hand while they tap the rubber hand synchronously and correspondingly in the same places. So what's happening is you're seeing a rubber hand in front of you, you're seeing someone tap it, and you're feeling the taps on your real hand, which is out of sight. So what happens is after only 20 seconds or so of this stimulation, the rubber hand feels like it's yours. Your proprioception shifts to the rubber hand. This is called the rubber hand illusion. It's very, very well studied. Oh God, there's like thousands and thousands of articles studying this because it, it's a way to study how the brain represents the body. So in 2008, we reproduced the same thing in virtual reality. So you're in virtual reality, you see a virtual hand, um, somebody taps your real hand and you see that tapping happening on the virtual hand. And once again, after a few seconds of this stimulation, the brain integrates the touch and the vision into one overall perception. And you have the feeling that the virtual hand is your hand. Basically, it's the same results as were obtained with the rubber hand illusion. So we personally haven't used this, but other people have. For people with a missing arm who have the phantom limb pain, um, when they see their virtual arm in virtual reality, or there's even more simple ways to do this, uh, the phantom pain goes away. So they see an arm, their brain thinks, oh, okay, there is an arm here after all. Uh, it, it's my arm. I can, I can feel something tapping it while I'm seeing something tapping it. Of course, you can't tap on the real hand, but you can tap on another part of the body. The brain integrates this into the perception that the virtual hand is your hand and the phantom pain disappears. Of course, once you take off the head-mounted display, the pain will come back again, but at least this gives uh, the scientists some clue about what's going on in the brain that's causing this and how possibly this kind of pain might be overcome. So I think it's a very good point that you've raised about um, phantom limb pain. Yes, this type of thing is being addressed in virtual reality. And I think there's very, very good prospects for uh, uh, reaching new ways to treat these kind of illnesses without taking, or these kind of conditions rather, without taking drugs and so on. Yeah. 
So I got one last question for you. This one's about the, how much weight do you put in the capacity of a person's brain to be able to fix that one part where you said technology might be 50 to hundred years out of the way of people being able to actually feel these types of scenarios or virtual realities that get placed in. My example would be kids that are just digitally native that grow up around video games, have advanced reflexes in their thumbs and fingertips compared to other people who don't use video games. You see this with, uh, I think it was a study on New York cab drivers. There was an area part of their brain that was expanded with, that happens to deal with navigation because the aspect of them having to remember routes and having to remember different roads and different street signs and all these types of things. I wonder, if someone's involved in virtual reality for a certain amount of time, an extended period, how long until the brain just meets you where that technology isn't available of making someone feel something and the brain starts to perceive this as being the real reality that they start to experience? Yes, very good point. So um, this doesn't happen with everyone, but if in virtual reality you see a sharp point and you have virtual hand and you put your virtual hand on the sharp point, Many people will feel it, even though not, there's no haptics, nothing physically is happening. So it's quite possible that uh, certain people, not everyone gets this, but some people will have the capacity to fill in missing information. That here, imagine everything coheres uh, to a certain event, like uh, you, you push your hand down very hard on a virtual table. And when you touch the virtual table, you hear a sound. So the vision is there, the auditory is there, and many people will fill in themselves the missing haptics. It won't be as strong as the real feeling, but it will be there. So somehow understanding this and amplifying it is what this kind of device or this kind of system would do in the future. And it's quite possible that children uh, uh, who, who, who have these kind of experiences may have that feeling more than adults who already kind of have been around for a long time. Um, but nevertheless, I, I think this is a really good point that you've made that we do anyway fill in missing sensory information. And maybe what we're looking for is devices that amplify that. They say you can't teach a dog, old dog, new tricks. I look at like, you don't have to try and fix the programming in a lot of people that are experiencing most of the world already today. But if you could change the ones that are coming up, for instance, in a beneficial way, obviously we talk about brainwashing in the beginning. That is a negative on some aspects, but there's positives to it. But if you look at a concept of, I feel like if you line the brain up to figure out, like just to fill in the rest of that missing information on a lot of things, a lot of concepts, we try too hard to make a technology that does it a hundred percent, or we try too hard to work with the brain's capacity. I go, I feel like the brain just needs steps. You just need some staircases, like a dog that's getting too old to jump on the bed anymore. And that the brain will fill in the rest of that information. It'll figure it out. It's much like a child. You give them a, a candy or you give them food. Eventually, they're going to figure out how to put it into their mouth and eat it. You know, it's that type of thing. Um, and then you'll get the select few that eat a toy. That just happens. But um, I, I look at it as a positive. I think these are some great aspects and great avenues that uh, virtual reality is heading into. Um, it's definitely given me a huge curiosity to want to put on the headset and see if I can be that person that experiences uh, the actual feeling of things as well, too, using haptic technology as well. Um, but I appreciate you for doing my show and everything. Mel, is there a place where people can find any of your links? Do you have a site? Do you have a Twitter? Do you have anything? Yes. Uh, if you look on um, www dot event-lab, 
events-lab.org www.event-lab.org and i'll link that in the description as well um is there anything you want to say to anybody out there listening before we wrap up the show no except uh well have fun in virtual reality and think about its possible consequences <laughs> that's a good one um thanks everybody for listening to this episode of out of the blank stay tuned for our next episode